The Second Mission Foundation is a nonprofit organization that exists to educate, elevate, and advocate for members of America's service community in order to help them find their second mission after government service. Second Mission Foundation was started by and for the members of America's service community. That means members of the armed forces, first responders, security contractors, etc. Second Mission provides these veterans the opportunity for them to tell their stories, reach their goals, and make their voices heard through educational outreach, entrepreneurship support, and community involvement. For everything going on in Second Mission Foundation, go to secondmissionfoundation.org. That's secondmissionfoundation.org all one word.org, secondmissionfoundation.org. Profiles in Havoc is a Havoc Journal podcast. Havoc Journal seeks to serve as the voice of the veteran community through a focus on current affairs and articles of interest to the public in general and the veteran community in particular. Havoc Journal strives to offer timely, current, and informative content. So if you haven't been there in a while, Check out the pages of Havoc Journal. Read the most articulate, opinionated, thoughtful, and provocative veteran writers writing about the nation, the world, politics, national security, culture, fitness, movies. list goes on and on and on. Havoc Journal is always expanding, always striving to improve the reader's experience. Check it out at HavocJournal.com. That's Havoc with a K, Journal.com, HavocJournal.com. You know, on Profiles in Havoc, we we try to interview veterans who, you know, who've really made an impact, who've stood out. Uh, from the crowd who have done you know stuff that would be worthy of having a profile in Havoc, uh, as the name suggests. I don't really look too much into their military history. Some guys and gals' military history is kind of screamingly obvious and, and demands attention. Um, others, not so much. Um, but you know, I look at them holistically. You know, what have they done in life and all that? And are they somebody that would be interesting to talk to? I did not know much about our guests' military history this week. I didn't realize how brief it was. I certainly didn't realize how traumatic it was. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about why I chose to piggyback on the Savage Wonder episode, on the Savage Wonder podcast, uh, with this episode for this week. Because Nicholas F. Stathew is um, not a name that a lot of you might know. You might know his Instagram profile at Cross Massachusetts, where he writes what I think is some of the most shocking, horrific <laughs> content that you can find on Instagram that's not banned. Um, it is horror. It is realistic horror. And it's the kind of writing that's, you know, I've read my share of traumatic fiction or fiction that's been you know, drawn from the author's personal trauma. Uh, there seems to be a certain relish, a certain delight, a certain enthusiasm for the horror in here. Not a glee, not um, a giddiness, let's say, but a willingness to really explore the dark side of humanity that I always find interesting because in my experience, and and there are notable exceptions, but in my experience, generally, veterans don't try to explore the dark side as much because they've kind of already done that in their real lives. So artistically and in their writing, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, uh, there tends not to be as much of a fascination with the dark side because, you know, in many respects, we've seen 
more of the dark side than, you know, somebody that's, you know, been staying at home. I don't know, going to college, trying to pursue different, you know, careers or what have you in the States and, and, and wants to kind of taste danger a little bit. Um, I, I haven't seen that too often in the veteran community, but there have been notable exceptions. Nicholas F. Stathew is an exception. <laughs> and I was fascinated as to how this veteran's mindset had lent itself to such horrific writing. And when I say horrific writing, I mean, the content is shocking and, um, yeah, shocking is probably the best word. Yep. Uh, but the talent is certainly there and he's clearly a talented writer. And I was like, is this all he's written? You know, what's the story with this? Why does it, why does he have so much in this well that he can keep going back to over and over? Cause he posts almost daily, a new story. And, um, and it's interesting. I won't give a whole lot of spoilers for the interview. Cause I want you guys to hear it for yourselves. Um, I really enjoyed talking with him, but one of the biggest takeaways was kind of what a shocking time the cold war era was for many service members. Um, Nick did not serve during the GWAT. He served in the early to mid nineties. And it is the second time I've talked with a veteran who served at that time period that suffered horrifically traumatic events in a peacetime military. Now it's not to say that there haven't been horrifically traumatic events suffered during wartime stateside. Um, I mean, we all know about Fort hood, right? But it is fascinating to me. Um, and I don't know if it's coincidental, uh, or, or if it's an accurate sampling, but the degree of shockingly traumatic experiences that it seems like I've run into from cold war era veterans, specifically that served in the nineties is pretty stunning. Um, and you know, I, I won't give any spoilers about what Nick talks about with it. There's not, I'll, I'll just simply say there's not a lot he can say about it. There's not a lot. I think there's still a lot he has to still unpack uh, from it. And it's interesting because I, I tell everybody before they come on air, I'm like, hey, is there any left and right limits? Um, things you want to talk about, things you don't want to talk about, anything like that. And, um, you know, a lot of times guys are like, no, 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 I'm an open book, say whatever. And then you get on air and you're like, oh, you, okay, you're not, you're, you're clearly there's some stuff that we can't go down. Um, Nick, to his credit, was not like, hey, I'm an open book, but I think he was willing to bravely dip his toe in the water and see how much he wanted to talk about. And I was grateful for what he shared because I think it's, it's something that, you know, especially as we, as the boat slides back into a peaceful army, a peaceful military now, peacetime military now, um, the slackness, the lack of focus, and the and the tra- trauma that it can occur from that lack of focus sometimes is um, worth noting. And um, anyway, Nick's had a hell of a life um, with an awful lot still to go, and it'll be interesting to see what happens from here. But I'm excited to bring him and his work to you. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer, and this is Nicholas F. Stathews, Profile and Havoc.
welcome to the show, Nick. Hey, thanks, man. Uh, dude, it's. Uh, I feel like this has been a long time coming, and maybe that's just in my mind, because from the moment uh, that Ben Fortier put me onto your work, I was like, what the fuck? I was like, I got to talk to this guy, man. <laughs> so I, I want to do something a little different to start sure. this episode, because yeah. this episode is going to be a different episode. Uh, I want to read you back to you. Can I do that for a second? Can you indulge me? Uh, yeah, yeah. So I didn't want to cherry pick. So I was like, I just, I'm going to go with whatever your latest post is. And then I saw you posted <laughs> like last night and I was like, okay, cool. That is, that was, that was a great exhibit a for what I wanted to talk about. So I'm going to read it for everybody's edification here. All right. It's titled 1931 surgery. Not what I wanted to see. I found a nurse standing outside of a surgical room. She was in the process of adjusting her garb when I cut her throat from behind and left her bleeding to death on the linoleum floor. I pushed open the swinging doors of the surgical chamber and found myself face to face with horror. A young woman lay on the operating table, arms strapped down and legs in stirrups, the feet bolted into place. She struggled against the bonds and the thing clawing its way out of her stomach. I suspect she would have screamed had a great flap of skin not been sewn across her mouth. At some point, someone had removed her eyes as well. This last, however, may have been done as a mercy. The discoloration on her skin and the marks upon it appeared to have been caused by whatever abomination grew within her. A trio of nurses and a pair of doctors worked around the victim, their voices strained and their focus solely upon the salvation of the child and not the mother. As I prepared to step forward and kill them all, the young woman's belly exploded. A rib shot out, pierced one doctor's eye, and burst from the back of his head as he collapsed to the floor. The woman on the table shuddered and expelled the thing within her half, through the, uh, within, within her half through her stomach and half in what would have been a natural birth. The thing in her tore her open, and a great clawed hand snapped out, gripped the closest nurse by the throat, and shredded it. The other two nurses came at the thing with syringes, plunging the needles into its gray-green skin. The other doctor stepped over his dead colleague and tried to wrench the thing from the mother's corpse. As he did so, a long black tongue lashed out, snatching first the doctor's left eye and then his right. The thing then grabbed the nurses and pulled them into the corpse. The room shuddered as their legs disappeared into her belly, and then the body collapsed upon itself. I found myself alone with a screaming doctor and a pair of corpses. I took a length of surgical tubing and looped it around the doctor's neck. He died quicker than the others, but not nearly as quickly as he would have liked. It's hard for me to like go in and explain to an audience what your writing is like. I was like, this is the shortest way I can do that. So at this point, we're down to three people listening and everyone else is vomiting on the floor. So I guess I guess the first thing is, I mean, tell me about let, let's start with a 30,000 foot view. What the fuck? Why? Why? Yeah. Do you go, why do you go to this place? Where does this all come from? So, apparently, I am writing and working my way through some uh, personal trauma. <laughs> um, and, and that's it. Um, it's really how I wrestle with the stuff that's in my head. Okay. You know? So, I mean, obviously, that begs the question then. I mean, so... Well, I'll, I'll take the scenic route of asking this asking this question. Um, I know that 
Marlon Brando, you know, widely considered the greatest method actor of all time and, you know, highly regarded and all that, didn't actually have that traumatic a life. He had a pretty normal upper middle class upbringing and lived a, a relatively dilettantish life for the most part, but he could achieve depths of feeling because his sensitivity was such that he was just so finely attuned. It didn't take much for him to go to a place that a lot of people could relate to, even though he had experienced far less than many of them. I say that because I think, I think sometimes it's an overwrought truism that artists have to have experienced a ton in order to create their art. I think sometimes if your sensitivity is just calibrated delicately enough, um, you can pick up and intuit all you need to create great art without having experienced the absolute depths of maybe everything your characters go through. Right. In your, to, to your way of thinking, do you think, do, I mean, has your life been the human parasite or, or is there a degree of like, hey, uh, I, I am also you know, pretty finely calibrated and I can, I can pick up and I'm sensitive to enough to capture? I, I think it's a good mix is what it is. Um, I think I had a pretty pretty standard, you know, North American childhood. I'm a child of the 90s. You know, I'm 49. Um, parents split when I was like three, but my dad was always in the picture. Um, my dad was pretty much a standard, at times, Vietnam vet. Um, a lot of stuff that he still deals with. He just wanted to talk about, and I get that completely. Um, Pops was a hard man. Never touched me. But uh, <laughs> didn't want to make that man mad. Still don't, you know? Um, stepfather was a little handsy at times, um, more than anybody needed. Uh, some stuff when I was in the service and... But other than that, no, you know, I have a really active imagination. Uh, I grew up next to a cemetery. So what, uh, where'd you grow up? Where'd uh, you... so Nashville, New Hampshire. So okay. right over the border. Sure. Uh, Mass. Okay. You know? And, um, when you look back, what, when you do kind of a QAQC on yourself, what do you find are the memories and for lack of a better word, the trauma that sticks with you the most? Is it from your childhood or is it from the military? What, what sticks with you? Um, mostly it's the childhood and it's just beginning with the military because I'm just starting to look at it. You know, um, it's been locked up and closed down for a long time. When it's were, been 20, yeah, I was 25 say, years. 25 years, yeah. More than that, shit. 27. Wow. Yeah, 94, 95. Yeah. <laughs> when, when did you get out? Who was that when? 95? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And what did, so, you, did, you do, did you do one enlistment? Or how long were you in for? Not even. I got uh, my incident happened at the end of AIT. Um, yeah. Yeah, it was rough. Um, I had big plans. You know, I, I gained weight to get into the military. I was a, was a really thin guy. So it's a whole lot of stuff. Well, um, let's start maybe with your with what got you into the military. Why did you join? Was it because your dad was a Vietnam vet? Did you have an impression of the military that you wanted to follow? Uh, 
No, because my dad hated it. My dad had an option, two years in prison or Vietnam. And, well, Army, I shouldn't say Vietnam, Army. Uh, it was the best decision he ever made, but he hated it. Um, I was literally, if you remember that commercial from the 80s, Be All That You Can Be, you know, that was me. I was like, I, I need to serve my country. And then, of course, they're like, you're too small, kid. I'm like, ah! So it took me a couple of years to gain the weight. But And did you think this was going to be a career? Not necessarily a career, but I had goals. You know, it was, you know, 13 Foxtrot, so a Ford Observer. Then it was Airborne. And the goal was to try for Ranger School, you know. Um, didn't happen blasted my way through basic and ait uh, my dad still has my you know my little most motivated trophy somewhere but uh yeah how much uh, i i'll put you on the spot and you can just tell me if it's a bridge too far how much do you want to talk about what happened um I, mentally i can't um i've only told like one person yeah and that was my therapist my buddies you know, from the army, they're still like, what happened? I'm like, can't, can't, let's just talk about something else. Wow. You know? Wow. Um, so. So it resulted though in an early separation. Yeah. Yeah. I was not pleased. Yeah. Talk you about know. just what your mind state was then leaving the army so soon. Angry. Angry at everything that had happened that put me there, you know? Um, Cause man, I was, I was fucking gung ho. You know, <laughs> I was. Uh, did you did you feel diminished? Did you feel unfulfilled? Did you feel unrequited? How how did you feel just for going forward and finding other stuff now to do in life when you've been heading in one direction so hard? I I didn't at first. Um, tried in the immediate aftermath to end it. That didn't work out, um, thankfully. And um, picked up what I could and then just uh, moved on, you know. But I shut it all down. Yeah. You know? Yeah. What did that mean for you moving on? Did it, did it mean finding a completely 180-degree different line of work, um, a mental shift, or was it physical relocation what did that what did that entail moving on from that first it was it was mental um i like i said i locked a lot of it up and just you know compartmentalized bang done um fell back on what i always did which was read i always um worked in a library for a little bit met my wife Moved from Connecticut, where I was living with my dad, back up to New Hampshire. And um, she has yet to kill me, thankfully. And, uh, yeah. So, but, yeah. How, um, I don't want to, I don't want to dwell on this more than you want, but I feel like, I, I shouldn't have just skipped over the fact that your stepfather was like handsier than he should have been. 
Yeah. I mean, <laughs> what the fuck is up with that? I mean, and that um, has to be pretty impactful. I mean, that. Yeah, that was. Yeah, like, like I'll talk to the kids that you know. I'm a teacher, in case you didn't know. You know, I teach. Right. You know, fifth graders right now, but before that was seventh and eighth, and before that, for a couple of years, I worked with intensive special needs kids, and you know, especially with the kids I work with now, I tell them guys, we can't ask too many questions about home if people don't want to talk about it. Sometimes home just isn't that great, you know? Um, and I tell them, I said, take a look at my nose. Take a good look. And you notice that it's, it's crooked, you know? And that's because it was broken for me a couple of times, you know? And that's what I mean by handsy, you know? So it wasn't sexual. It was physically abusive. Yeah. Yeah, it was, uh, I got, I got one great memory <laughs> that I tell, uh, I feel like my brother and I joke about it, but so my brother was running, like running, run hauling ass because he knew where the line was and he would, it was like the old Looney Tunes. He would jump right over it, you know? And then back on the other side. Um, so this one time, he must have been eight or nine, and he, had, you know, he was running his mouth to our our stepfather, and he's just hauling ass. And I see him running, and I'm on the porch, and I've got the doors open because we're supposed to go to basketball practice. So he comes flying out, you know, like I slam the door and I close, you know, give him time to get down the porch steps and over to the car. Well, stepfather comes out, throws it open, and. You know, I step in front of him and he just grabs me and he throws me. Well, the thing is, he threw me over the fucking railing of the porch. <laughs> and it's just, it's a face plant under the driveway and everything. And our dad would come up every two weeks to get us. He drove up from Connecticut and then back. But he would also come up for the games and everything. He never, the man never missed anything. So, it must have been like a week later. We're at a basketball game, and our coach would let us go sit with our dad. You know, when we were yeah. playing, which was a lot because I rode the bench a lot. I wasn't, a, <laughs> wasn't a solid player. So I'll go. I, I sit down next to my dad. My dad's sitting next to my stepfather. My dad looks at my face. He goes, "What happened?" You know, so you black eye, I'm all scratched up and stuff. I'm like, oh, you know. Mike threw me. He goes, oh, oh, he did. Okay. All right. Listen, kid, do me a favor. Go sit down on the bench. I, I got to talk to Mike for a minute. So I go down on the bench. You know, my brother comes on and we're sitting down and we look up and my dad is just like this. Real close. And you can just see just the, the color draining from my stepfather's face. You know, it didn't do any good. You know? Really? Yeah. Because my mother was like, you know, you know, he'll beat your father up, which made us laugh because my, my, my dad's a tough man. And then she's like, you're just telling us how much trouble we'd be in if we said anything again. So just didn't. Wow. Did you, did you ever say anything to your dad again? Did your dad ever get involved again? Um, we probably did, but I don't know if anything came of it because uh, they probably threatened my dad with going to jail. Yeah. Because my dad is the type of guy who would uh, 
put somebody in the hospital easily and not even mean it. So, How much of what ended up happening in the army was related to your childhood, do you think? Or was it was a completely separate set of circumstances? I think it's only related in the sense that my childhood obviously deeply affected who I am. Sure. You know, um, I tend to speak my mind when I shouldn't. Mm. But, uh, and, and I did, and I paid for it in a way I didn't think possible. So, how, how much of that childhood do you think? I mean, I can understand how early on it would be, it would seem like a burden. But over time, and now with the benefit of hindsight, do you think there's been silver linings to it? Or do you think it was, there was some a, a toughness or a competency that you developed that you wouldn't have otherwise gotten that's become core to who you are? Or do you think it just would have been better had that never, and any of it ended up happening? I don't know. I've never dwelled on the, the what ifs of it okay. because it's just... It's how I was raised. It was my environment. Uh, you certainly don't think anything's out of the normal. You know, uh, my dad had severe psoriasis. So it was completely normal to me to see all the plaque build up and to see all the blood that would be there. Uh, you know, aside from my stepfather i just i thought that was how most dads looked you know it's it's what you're familiar with you know you got married relatively early then yes (laughs) yeah we're doing our 26th wedding anniversary in may wow congratulations yeah Yeah. that's a hell of an accomplishment it is that's uh that's more my wife than it is me because I, I don't know how she deals with me some days because I'm off the fucking chain. Are you? Oh, yeah. I am so, I'm just extra. I'm just loud and bouncing around, you know, stupid temper some days. Yeah. My daughter tells um, her little brother, she's like, but you know, like, I'll say something and he'll be like, Really? really dad he's 12 and my daughter who's 24 she goes hey kid you have no idea you've got the calm mellow dad you know this this is not the dad screaming through the house so yeah did you i mean it's i i and i'm not trying to play amateur psychiatrist i'm just fascinated (laughs) in when when i read your stuff i mean there are days and I'm sure that I'm not the first person to tell you this. There are days where I'm like, Nick, you're fucking crushing it. I can't read this today. I give yeah. it a like, I move on. I'm like, I, 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 I can't do it today. Like there were times I'll, I'll tell you. I've, so I've had this conversation about two people. Ben Fortier was the first one. And then you were the second where uh, we talked about you at vet rep. I was like, you know, Nick's writing is really good. I was like, we should have him on the blog. And, and we were, everyone was like, you know, like we get people that, you know, sometimes I've told Ben 40 or this, I'm not telling tales out of school. Um, but you know, when Ben, when Ben's writing comes on, there's people that have written and been like, 
I, I can't read them today. Like, and it, yeah. we don't lose subscriptions or anything, but people are just like, Hey man, that that's a little hard. I, I can't deal with that today. And I was like, yeah, if we put Nick on, that's going to be, people are going to be like, what the fuck? Because it goes right to their inboxes. It's like, yeah. okay, so I'm just opening up my emails. I'm like, what the fuck? You know? And I was like, yeah. we're going to scare the shit out of people. And they're not going to want to read the stuff we send, but I'm, I'm endlessly fascinated with what you write because you haven't, and I want to be clear about this because this was not, I don't think people that are new to your work would have gotten this just from what I read, but you haven't, you're not just writing shock stories. You've created an entire world, an entire ecosystem in yeah. cross Massachusetts. I mean, it's, it's an impressive holistic undertaking. I mean, it's like, holy shit, you've created this ecosystem that's like vibrant and horrific but vibrant yeah. and 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 a complete 360 degree treatment. So this is not just hey, I feel like having a temper tantrum or scaring the shit out of people <laughs> on, on the page today. This is no. like, I mean, this is something that that truly is is a world. Um, did you intend to do that, or how much of that was a happy accident, and how much of that was intended? Uh, it was a happy accident because so I am 49. I created Duncan Blood and Cross Massachusetts 31 years ago. So he's been kicking around in my head this whole time. And Christ, I don't know how many years ago I started on Instagram, but I started just throwing up, you know, little things about Cross, like the history of Cross, like bang, bang, bang. And then I did a couple about Duncan and there was a really positive reaction. I'm like, well, I love Duncan. He's, he's my man. Some of my first supernatural stories were with him. So I'm like, I hate writing in the first person. I hate it. But I'm like, the only way I can get Duncan's story across is if it's a journal. And so I started doing that and people responded really well to it. They um, they liked it, and you know he's he's ageless just about, and he's just this. Some days he's a great guy, and some days he's just a miserable son of a bitch, you know. So I guess let's start at the beginning with that, and and I think I want to go back to the inspiration. Besides you, besides your own sense memory, and, and well, you know, processing trauma and all that. Literarily, what were your influences? I mean, where was this coming from? So, my favorite author is John Steinbeck. Okay, he's got a really—he just punches you in the gut. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's there's Ray Bradbury and Stephen King, and I remember finding this collection of short stories by a guy named M.R. James, okay? M.R. James only wrote ghost stories at Christmas time because he was English. And that's the English tradition, is they write and tell ghost stories on Christmas Eve because they're fucking English and, you know. But this guy was a professor of, like, ecumenical studies and ecumenical architecture at, like, Oxford and shit. But I was in the middle of one of his books, and then... There's some weird station that plays only like 1970 shows. 
and there's an interview and it's it's king right and it's richard matheson and it's peter straub and i think it's william march was the other guy right all these like really heavy hitters yeah and they're all sitting there they're all smoking cigarettes you know king's like 20 something years old and they're all talking and they start going yeah you know like king turns to matheson he goes i just i just love how you can make a reality evil like that gas station down the street is just messed up you know and then they all agree they're like yeah but mr james really i'm like yeah mr james I mean, you got to dig deep when you read that because there's so much there. But it's all guys like that, you know, Shirley Jackson, you know. Tell you the story that messed me up the most when I read it was the lottery. Oh. It's because just how evil it is. And it's not even evil to be evil. They're evil because it's just it, it's what they do. <laughs> it's just yeah. no. Yeah. And how old were you when you were reading this stuff? At what point in your life was this? Uh, yeah. All right. So uh, the first King I read was The Gunslinger okay. back in probably, I think, 87. So I must have been 13, 12 or 13. And my dad would always throw books at me and my mom, too. But my dad would be like, hey, you know, read this. But skip these pages. My dad didn't mind violence, but sex was something else. You know, I watched the movie Conan the Barbarian. My dad had a bootleg of it. Didn't know he had cut out all the sex scenes. Uh, I didn't even know there were sex scenes in the movie until uh, I was in my uh, 20s. You know? uh, uh, <laughs> I was like, oh. But, yeah, so I've, I mean, I've been reading nonstop since I was about four. You know? Did you think that you were going to do something with it? Did you, at, at any point, did you think, you know, when you were young, did you think it could be a career? Did you think it would just be a hobby? Did you think I just like reading? What, where, where did you think it was going to go? Probably a hobby. Because okay. I, I remember entering a young author's competition in third grade. Wow. And I, I wrote a book on like four different languages, you know, just comparing them. Because, you know, what else is a third grader going to do? Fucking Jesus. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. No, I know. I've got issues. Whoa. Yeah. I mean, what a nerd. I mean, that that's impressive, man. That's like, that's like serious, like intellect. That's, that's impressive. How, how did it go down? How'd the competition go down? I placed, you know, so that was nice. That is nice. That's a fun thing. Yeah. 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 And so, um, so did you think, so I want to get the timeline right. So when you first thought of Duncan Blood and Cross Massachusetts, right? They're, they're together. You thought of both of them at about 18? Yeah, I was a senior so. in high school. Yep. So when you first thought of them, were these just, was this something you were, was literally just in your head or were you taking notes on them? Were you trying to actually put pen to paper in any way? I had written one or two stories. And I let a couple of friends that I played D&D with and a couple of friends that I played football and stuff with, I let them read them. And they liked them. And then they just got, they got tucked away. I got, uh, I got booted out of my mother's house, went down to live with my dad. And uh, 
was pretty wild down there for a bit. You know, did some stuff. <laughs> what, what does that mean? Does that you know, some stuff? I'm assuming not literary stuff. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I was still writing. I was still writing a lot, but um, I was introduced to alcohol. Mm-hmm. Became very good friends for a while. You know. Well, you were writing. That that seems like a natural introduction. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah, right. That's um, right. What, but that's interesting. Were you, were you? It was that a discipline you always held that you had to write on an ongoing basis. Yeah. Was it yeah. journaling or was it creative writing or what? What is just it creative. Wow. Just just creative. I was writing on the that little bit of time that we had in basic and AIT. I still had a notebook that I was writing in. So, where did that come from? Was that just because you were such a reader, or was there some? Was your mom or your dad inspiring you to do it? Was a, te- did a no. teacher push you? This is all internal. No. Wow. As far as I know, it's all internal except for one teacher at high school. Uh, this guy named Mr. Richard White. And I'm going to tell you that my English teachers at high school were my salvation. I hated high school. It was a private all-boys school. It was, it was not a pleasant experience most of the time. But I remember I'd written this short story for Mr. White's creative writing class. And it starts off like this, you know, American GI, it's World War II, and he's in the long grass and he can hear the Germans coming towards him. And as they pass by him, he stands up and he just he opens fire, his own little ambush, right? But as he stands up, it shifts because it's going from the perspective of the soldier to what he really is. And he's like a 12-year-old kid playing war with his friends, you know? and um, I have it somewhere still. There's just a little check mark on it. That was Mr. White saying that it was acceptable. And on the back, he wrote, I find this to be an excellent rendition of childhood. I will not correct it in any way. And the man was a published author, you know? And he used to take our essays and assignments and he would put them on his table. And then he would take out a stack of boxes like this, right? And he'd go, gentlemen, these are red pens. I'm going to go through all of them this weekend correcting your papers. And he would. <laughs> it would look like a stuck pig on my paper. Wow. Wow. But yeah. So he was he was great. Did you so. see your writing materially improve from that? Are you somebody that responds well to criticism like that? I do now. Yeah. I did it for a while. In fact, um, I would be such a little bitch about it that my wife just went, I'm not reading your stuff anymore because you get offended. And it took me a long time to realize that I was not personally being attacked if something wasn't working. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. What What about in the scholastic process? I mean, it, obviously, there's. it's a little easier probably to take criticism at that age. But was it for you, or were you still? Oh no, no, I was, still, I was, I was a prick. Wow, wow, yeah, that says something. Um, I, I think you can only really, I think only talented people really can have a prickish attitude about their work <laughs> at that age. 
you know, I mean, if you're most people, I mean, you might be might be an Olympic athlete, but you'd be like, whatever, fine, okay, you didn't like my essay. But if you're yeah. if you're a, if you're a talented writer, like you're, that's a hill you'll die on, I think. Yeah, that's something that's interesting. Well, it shouldn't have died on some of them, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have all of that stuff still? Are you good at keeping all of your stuff? Okay. No, um, I kept that one piece because. Like I said, Mr. White was great. I had another teacher, uh, Mrs. Starrett. Um, I walked into her room one day. It's first day, sophomore year. Sat down. I opened up The Grapes of Wrath. I love Steinbeck. She comes over to me. She looks down and she goes, is that Steinbeck? Yes. Show her the cover. She goes, Grapes of Wrath. I'm like, yep. Are you reading that for another class? I'm like, no. She goes, you're just reading it to read it. Yes. She goes, see me after class. I'm like, great. First day. I'm already in fucking trouble. What now? You know? So I stay after class. She walks me to the back of the room and she's got a wall locker and she opens it up and it's all classics. Mm. She goes, anytime you want, you come back here, you grab a book, whatever book. She goes, I've never seen somebody come in reading Steinbeck on their own. She goes, the only book I suggest you don't read yet is Deliverance. Huh. And so I, I, I waited on Deliverance for a while. <laughs> now, when you, what was the first stuff you were writing on your own? Was it the Duncan Blood cross Massachusetts stuff or was there other stuff you were writing? There was other stuff before that, you know, attempts at, you know, fantasy fiction. Like okay. I read Eyes of the Dragon by Stephen King. And I've been reading stuff by Piers Anthony, the Dragonlance books, just tried my hand at that, tried my hand at some sci-fi, and none of it really did it for me. Did you ever read Odyssey of a Space Tyrant, Piers Anthony? No. Well, I might have, because I think at one point, up until like the early 90s, I had read everything that man had written. Really? I'd even written him a letter. Really? and And he had answered it. Yeah. Oh shit! What did he yeah. say? I don't even remember. <laughs> you know, I was like, "Holy shit! Who's this from? Florida? I don't know." Oh shit! I wrote to him. So that's crazy. Yeah, I I I didn't read a ton of Piers Anthony, but I did read Odyssey of a Space Tyrant, and that yeah. was that was a seminal experience. That was one of those really memorable series nice. that I read at that age. Um, so Piers Anthony always that's always a name that that sparks. A lot of memories for me. What, um, so when you were trying to write fantasy fiction, what was it that wasn't working? When you look back at it now, what was it that was missing the mark for you? Reality. Huh. Okay. Like, I can put fantastical elements into realistic fiction, but for some reason I have a difficult time putting realistic elements into fantastical fiction. Uh, interesting. Interesting. That makes complete sense. I could, I could, I could, I've never tried doing that, but I could see that being an issue. Yeah. Um, and that just reminded me of, right. You want to know why there's horror and realism mashed up in my little head. So there's a poem. I think it's 
I'm not sure if it's Stevenson or if it's Browning. It's from the 1800s. It's called mm-hmm. Little Orphan Annie. And to understand the poem, you have to understand that at that time period, people would literally go to an orphanage and get a kid to come live at their house to do all the work. So the poem is about little orphan Annie, who's come to our house to say, to sweep away the cinders and, you know, you know, put the bread away. The poem, she talks about how goblins will come and get children that don't behave. You know, they like snatch them out of their beds and all sorts of shit. When I was about six, I was terrified of that poem. Absolutely terrified. And the illustrations in that particular edition, the goblins are like these long, thin, almost wooden creations. My mother chased me around the house reading that poem to me. So, you know, it, it doesn't surprise me when I start creating like an evil character or and all of a sudden, they've got like really long ears and really long nose, and I'm like motherfucker, there you are again, you know. It's it, it is interesting. I mean i I was talking about this with some folks recently about how, um, I, I forget who said this. I want to say like Truffaut or somebody talked about this, but I might just be making that up. Anyway, but uh, the idea that um, most creative geniuses are fixated on one thing for the entirety of their career and their entire career is spent breaking that apart. It's a Woody Allen. Everything's about sex and death, you know, like that kind of thing. Um, Do you, are you, have you completely embraced that? It seems like you have. So I feel like I'm asking an obvious question, but lesson, is there like a romantic comedy dying to come out of you? And you're like, yeah, I'll get to that eventually. Yeah. This is like, this is the thing, right? This is like, this is it. Yeah. Yeah. There are, and I'm seeing them myself now, like trees. Trees are a big thing for me. Um, Like in New England, if you dig deep enough, there's the lore about willow trees, you know, that they're going to uproot themselves and move at night. Um, The fact that so many oak trees and elms are planted in cemeteries, you know, and and they feed off the dead. And just my younger son, when he was um, little, little, you know, driving past these orchards and apple trees look scary as fuck. And he looks at the trees and he goes, he sees them, he goes, those scary trees dancing with eyes on their hands and feet. And we're like, well, yeah, yeah, okay, I can see that, you know. So, yeah, they're definitely New England in trees, yeah, and the dead. That it's that's my world. You yeah, know? Let, let's let's talk about that world for a second because I, I meant to dwell on that more. I don't think it's coincidental that you're in New England and that your life has been lived in New England. I feel like you wouldn't be writing this, at least not the same way. If you'd moved to the Southwest. You exactly. To that? Yeah. Oh, no, I, I know it is. Um, so, like I said, grew up across from a cemetery. Yeah. It, it's a beautiful cemetery. You know, it's got a wrought iron fence around like three sides of it. There's a chapel from the 1930s. Um, 
you know, their headstones with guys from the Civil War and War of 1812, mm. mm-hmm. all sorts. Um, we still go there on a pretty regular basis, but, you know, for more you know personal reasons now, um, one of our grandsons is buried up near the front. Um, my grandparents are in the middle and our oldest boy. Uh, he's buried up at the top. So the cemeteries are always, you know, integral to New England, I think. You can't, yeah. you know, even in Boston, you go into Boston, you know, yeah. Yeah. you're fine where the dead are planted. There's also a certain type of horror, I think, even just when you talk in the literary sense that comes from New England. And obviously, Steve yeah. is a big example. But, but I mean – Right. I mean, it's a different kind of sensibility. I'm asking, I I don't know enough. I can speculate, but have you given any thought as to why that is? Do you have any idea of why there's, and it is funny because I said, Ben Fortier introduced me to your work and Ben's got his own issues uh, with, with uh, horror writing, all that. And of course he's in Rhode Island and it's like, where, where Lovecraft is from. And it's like, you know, there's, there's just, there's something about New England, and I'm not sure why that is. Um, do you know? Have you ever thought about why so much comes from that area? I think because for, you know, granted, I'm a mutt genetically, but for the English-speaking people, yeah, we had Virginia for you know Jamestown, then Roanoke. But Massachusetts Bay Colony, I mean, not only do you have the whole Salem witch trial, but if you go up just a little bit further into Maine, they had like a stone-throwing devil on one island that if you went up there, there's nothing to see, but stones would be thrown at you, you know? I mean, it's just, wow. yeah, it's, and there are even places that the Native Americans would be like, eh, you really don't want to go over there. There's something wrong. It's just you know? so weird. It's yeah. so strange. It's such a strange – and it's funny because it is such an old – the oldest part of the country, yet there's still so much that it seems like is beneath the surface and people still haven't totally mined. Yeah. There, you know? And, and New Englanders are really, really good at keeping secrets. It's terrible, you know? It's like you find stuff out. Like, what do you mean? No. Is that a waspy yeah. thing? Is it because it's because there's not enough, not enough just saying yeah. what you mean and there's a lot of, you know, papering it over with, with etiquette and, and no place Mind your belief. business. You mind your business? Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, in fact, like, yeah, that was another thing I got in trouble with, uh, you know, with one of my sergeants, you know, they're doing a you know, contraband inspection in the barracks. And I'm sitting there I'm like, and I had like candy, candy, candy. My dad gave me this bag of candy and I'd hidden it inside the cotton balls I used to polish my boots. And I thought I was set and the sergeant went to move it and it didn't weigh like a bag of cotton balls. It weighed like a bag of hard candy. And he dumps it out on my bunk. And he goes, where are you from? 
because at the time I was from Connecticut, I went Connecticut. And he goes, oh, they teach you how to hide things in New England? Like, they do. And that didn't go over well. But it was fucking the truth. We hide shit constantly. You know? Yeah. So let's, let's, um, I think that's necessary backstory. As I say, like, I feel like a, a completely unqualified psychiatrist going through this, but I was like, just the, the, the writing like lends itself to so much speculation where you're like, where's all this coming from? So I, I wanted to ask all this backstory and kind of yeah. get some clarity about that. I guess the other piece though, was the actual craft itself. And I want to ask about where, what you thought Duncan blood and cross Massachusetts was going to lead to. Did you start thinking, Hey, I, I this is going to be my magnum opus. This is going to be a novel. This is going to be a series of novels. Like, what did you, I mean, at that time, you know, the internet was still, you know, relatively yeah. massive. So, I mean, what, what did you think it was? How did you, th- how did you see any of this playing out? For me, it was, here is just people reading my stuff. They don't have to pay for it. I'm getting good feedback and I am compelled to write every day um, unless something has happened. Um, And I will post that something's going on if there's not going to be another story um, for the day. And I I literally write 500 words a day just on Duncan Blood. And then I, I cut that down to make it fit the 2200 uh character limit so how long have you been in this battle rhythm that you're in now of churning out material because obviously that's very instagram specific but i mean (laughs) you've been working on this for a long time and that when did it when did it settle in this rhythm and what did it look like before instagram before instagram it was just me It, it could be anything you know, I've always just done that ass and see. You know, I'm not going to get any writing done if I just sit and think about it. So, and then why was that important to you to be writing? Why, why, I mean, were you thinking there's got to be books in here? There's got to be a novel? Like, it was no. just, was it therapeutic? What wouldn't you see a, the necessity? A lot of, to it, be? A lot of it is. Okay. I do want to be published. I, I love when I see that something of mine has sold, you know, I still submit though, not as much. Um, maybe seven years ago. Now I submitted a short story to, uh, this guy who was just starting a publishing house. He liked the story. We made a deal because I was out of work at the time where for a flat fee, I would write a book. We'd see how it went. Um, so I wrote it as a ghostwriter, so I don't have any credit. And I did like 60 books for the guy of 60 novels and about 20 more of just short story collections. And so, you know, and that was all ghostwriting. Yeah. Yeah. How did that that feel? (laughs) I mean, I mean, I could see some pros and I could see some cons. Um, 
eventually it got to the point where I was just sick and tired of dealing, not with the original guy, because he's great. He's a really good guy. He's a really bright guy, too. He has made a living off this. He's got multiple authors now. He's got them. He's got audiobooks. The books are being translated into Spanish and German. I mean, just he's done well. Uh, part of me is upset because, hey, yeah, look at me. I'm special. Look what I did. But the other part of me is like, yeah, that's great that there are f Facebook fan pages for this author. But that also means that I'm not getting all these extra thirsty people, you know, blown up my inbox or trying to find out where I live. Because that's, uh, that's something that, that they are actively trying to do. And I, I, don't, I don't want that. No. <laughs> I want the money. I don't want anything else. Sure, so. sure. Um, was that, so that's a pretty, I mean, that should have been a pretty big break in a lot of respects, right? Yeah. Did that translate that way? Were there good second and third order effects that allowed you to kind of, uh, either because of the money or because of the exposure, not that your name is being exposed, but just within the industry that it good word of mouth. I mean, what, did anything happen from that? Not really. And I think that's more on me than anything else. Um, so we had three children. Our oldest boy was 28, daughter is 24, and our youngest son is 12. Um, our oldest boy uh, struggled with mental illness and uh, he lost that struggle in August. And so for the past couple of years, though, we've been really focused on stuff other than me becoming an established, well-known writer. It's never even crossed my mind as something serious. I go upstairs, I sit down, I write. Um, but other than that, it's basically just been trying to put food on the table making sure there's heat and, you know, trying to keep the family together. Uh, and that's, and that was because of how much focus you were placing on your oldest son. Not all of it on him, but that was, there was a big part. Um, yeah. I mean, I saw that post obviously. And I, I mean, that's, I mean, for me, I don't uh, have to be a dad to be heartbroken for you, but, as a dad, I'm especially heartbroken. I mean, that that just seemed that was that was fucking brutal, man. Still is. I, I don't doubt it, and I don't. And let me let me segue off that to say, how did that? I mean, that can't be compartmentalized from your writing, right? I mean, no. Some of that has to bleed in, doesn't it? Yeah, and it does. Um, it does. I. I'm working on a couple of books for that company that I've been working with. And my name's actually on the covers now with, uh, with another gentleman. And you know, the past, the past two books I did, it's there, you know, cause I was finishing up one and the other with, um, 
right after this happens. And you, it, there's no way to try to keep it out. I didn't even bother. Um, so it is there with the character. It has to be, you know. Uh, yeah, I mean, you can't. Yeah, you you can't compartmentalize that. I mean, that, that of course, no. and especially when your when your instrument is as honed as yours is, if you're writing every day, I don't see how you could possibly get yeah. that apart. Um, is have you found that to be true for all of your writing that your writing is susceptible to what's going on in your life? Or oh, guaranteed, it, it is. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's the easiest way to deal with some of the things that I'm, you know, I might be going through. Um, I mean, I've got, I don't write poetry much anymore, uh, but I've got a good maybe 40 or 45 pages just since my son passed trying to work through some of the stuff, you know, mm -hmm. but when you have a, when you have a subject matter or a genre as specific as cross Massachusetts is, does that, do you ever feel like that's painted you into a corner where you're writing where you can't necessarily be as reflexive to something going on in your life because you're like, well, I'd like to be, say something, but I'm kind of in this genre and I can't, I don't like there's parts of it. It's, it's going to be so subtle for me to feather that into what I'm writing because I, I, I'm just it, the story is in a different place, or is it something that you really that you find to be pretty malleable that you can really inject stuff from your own life in there? I, I think it's pretty malleable, okay. um, which is why I like working with the reality aspect of it. Um, I don't think I could tackle a subject quite so serious as the death of a child in a fantasy story or in a sci-fi story for myself i couldn't um i can i feel with realistic fiction um like realistic car i should say mm -hmm. um and you know i've got a piece with uh dead reckoning right now that they're looking at that is no horror whatsoever yeah i know wow yeah. Where did that come from? Um, that one comes from all the veterans that I've met. Like, my wife will reprimand me. Like, if we go into a store, you know, I see a guy walking by or a woman walking by with a baseball cap, you know, that says their unit or whatever. And she goes, don't, don't, don't do it. And I'm like, Ugh. you know. That's why it's, you know, it's hell when I go to the VA, I got to keep focus. You know, I'm like, oh shit, that's a Korean war vet, you know, or you see some really old guy going along. It's like, fuck, that says Batan on his hat, you know, yeah. no. So, but I've met guys my whole life because my dad, that's the circle that he was in, you know, Vietnam vets and their fathers were all World War II vets, you know, and they're you know, younger uncles or older brothers of Korean War vets, you know? And so I've just, it, it, yeah, it's what I've always talked to. When you talk, why is that, why is it such an attraction still? Is it to reminisce? Is it to pick their brains? Is it, what, what do you get out of it? What is the allure <laughs> of talking to vets still? I love history. Mm. 
history is just, I mean, I have a master's in military history. That's my, it's my thing. Um, but it's also to acknowledge that how few people really step up and, and lift their hand and go, yeah, yeah, here I am. I'll do it. You know, I'll go forward. I will do this. Whether they were drafted or whether they chose to do it, they still did it, you know. Um, and I just find that endlessly admirable and fascinating at the same time. I know. Are you envious in any way? I would have been when I was younger. Mm. Definitely would have been because that was the gung ho me. Yeah. The adult me goes, holy shit, thank you, God, I was not shot at, you know? I mean, I've, I've been shot at in other instances, just not in combat. <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah. Yeah. So. No, that I, I could see that. I, I guess I, I've asked this sometimes of, of people just because, I mean, it's it's our era's where were you when JFK was shot? Um, yeah. What did 9-11 mean to you? I was, it was weird. It was weird because there was the sadness of it. Um, guy I went to high school with, really nice guy too. And he, there aren't a whole lot of people I can say that about, you know, that I know as friends. Just, he was yeah. a really nice man. Um you know, freshly married daughter on the way. He was in one of the planes that hit the towers. So that was that was pretty sad. Um, angry that it had happened, and then there was that whole disconnect, militarily speaking, where it's like, wow, the strategy of getting five planes in the air. And mounting an attack like that, it, it, it was brilliant, hateful, sure, but brilliant. Sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and but I also recognized what had happened that I was not able to do anything in response to it. Um, Two thousand one, married, two kids, house you know, responsibilities other than to my own ego, you know, and that's all it would have been um, to try to get back in, which just would have been an ego thing. And, uh, and I understood that surprisingly. It wasn't a whole lot I understood in mm, <laughs> that yeah. age, but. At that time, were you writing every day then? Oh, yeah. Across Massachusetts, Duncan Blood still? Not every day on him. Okay. But I, I was writing every day, whether it was poetry, whether it was a short story in general. So did you yeah. did, did 9-11 make its way into your writing in some way, shape, or form? I don't think so. I don't think so. Cause I think it was too big. Mm. Too big an event. It would have felt too on the nose <laughs> to write anything. Yeah. Yeah. It's like you see people 
and you're like, wow, you know, these are people who can write about it. And you see other people who can do something about it, you know, and, and we always go back as a community, we go back to Pat Tillman, you know, gave up everything. Um, There's another author and I can't, Jane Vizzy. I don't know what her married name is now, but she was a trader on Wall Street when this happened. Well-to-do, very intelligent, like big house out in the country in New York. 9-11 happened, quit her job, sold her house, joined the Marine Corps. You know, I mean, those are people that can do those things. And it's one of the few times in my life where I was able to acknowledge that I wasn't able to do something. Um, offered up different services because I worked as a trash man. We offered to some of the guys, we offered to drive down and use dump trucks and stuff and clean, but they already had enough people right. doing that. So, but yeah. So I, okay. So, you know, I probably should just, just for my own clarification, I should just uh, get the timeline down. Right. So when you got out of the military, you get married What's the plan at that point? What do you think you're going to do in life? So, let's see. Got married. And I think it was 97. I was, was working as a librarian driving a bookmobile. It's great. But my plan was just be a librarian. Really? That was it, man. Did you think you would write? Did you think you'd be a librarian and maybe you could write as well? Oh, yeah, because I, okay. I was doing that, you okay. know? Yeah. Um, I'm not going to lie. The, my boss for the bookmobile had no idea how to operate the computer. So, you know, I would be sitting there theoretically looking up books. And as soon as they walked out of the room, I would flip over to the next tab and I'd have a, a, a Word doc up. And I'd be like, going, yeah. yeah. Wow. Because that's the only practical thing I got out of high school was how to type. Yeah. I took a typing class. Down me. Hey. It but, works. Yeah. 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 But the plan was just to be a librarian. But at the time, this is 97, 98, it was like 867 an hour to be a librarian. And the city posted a job as a trash man, and that was like 13-something. And that was – yeah. I was like, shit. So I was a trash man for 17 years. Um, most of those 17 years, not going to lie, I was a miserable prick. I did not like the job. I did not like some of the guys I worked with. Uh, there was one guy, I swear to God, every time he talked, I wanted to punch him in the mouth. It was just, <laughs> he was just one of those guys. And he's, he's not that bad of a guy. It's just something about him. I was like, motherfucker. Did you ever see the movie Mars Attacks? No, I remember Jack those Nicholson? ads. I remember. Yeah. Yeah. That well, was that wave of alien movies in the late nineties that came yeah. out. Yeah. So there's Mars Attacks and the original Aflac Duck. Yeah, Gilbert Gottfried. Yeah. yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he sounded like the Mars Attacks alien and, you know, 
the fucking duck, you know, <laughs> and, and he was pigeon-toed to boot. So, you know, he'd walk in and he'd start, start to talk and, you know, me being the prick that I am, be like, nah, 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 shut the fuck up, man. Just shut up. <laughs> you shouldn't talk like that, Nick. I'm going to punch you in the fucking mouth in a minute. Just get out. <laughs> So, seventeen years. You, do, yeah. Do you get retirement from that? I got hurt, and I couldn't prove that it was the truck that did it because <laughs> they magically lost all the write-ups I'd done about the equipment. So, but the thing is, it, it worked out because I wasn't I wasn't angry anymore, and we struggled for a bit, and it wasn't fair on my wife, but I got screwed at another job right after that, but I fell into teaching. I was like, you know what? I'll substitute teach. I've got a, a master's. I was like, oh shit, kind of like this. That's weird. Cause I hated school as a kid. And I like it. And then they were like, oh, well, the only substitute position we have for the next couple of days is with these intensive needs kids. And I don't know if you've ever been in an intensive needs classroom. No, and I can imagine. It, yeah. it, it is a powerful experience, and I loved it. it the, kids, the kids are great. These are high school-age kids. Um, some of it's really rough. But for two years, I did that. I got hired full-time as a para. And you what do everything. That? What's a para? A paraprofessional, where you're not a teacher, you're one okay. step below. Um, and I mean, the teachers are right there with you. They they do all the dirty work too. Uh, we had one student. You know, you know the movie The Exorcist. Mm -hmm. Okay. Until that moment with that one student, I had never seen anyone projectile vomit oh, before. Wow. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but so it was it was stuff like that. Um, yeah. But I had to stop with them because this one kid, like six feet tall, 200 plus pounds, dad and older brothers were all wrestlers. Dad and older brothers we're all rangers. So they would all wrestle and roughhouse. And he got angry at me one day when I was talking to one of his friends and he just cold cocked me and knocked me out. I mean, out like a light. Like I came to on the floor. Um, I was out of work for like a week uh, with a pretty severe concussion. I still, that was almost three years ago. I still don't see the color red properly. It was permanent. Yeah. So. Holy shit. Yeah. And, and then. That, did that end your career as a special needs teacher? And then they yeah. transferred you? Okay. No, they didn't transfer me. They're like, okay. oh, no, you can come back. I'm like, oh, no, no. My wife doesn't want me to come back. My doctor said I can't have any more head injuries. I mean, I'd had head injuries before that anyway. Right. Uh, so COVID hit. And so I went to a place called St. Christopher's Academy, a religious school. They were looking for teachers because they were going to stay open during COVID. So I went in. Gotcha. I, I taught there for two years. 
And then I got cherry picked by another school. And that's where I'm at now. Place called Founders. Okay. So there's several threads that are that are interesting (laughs) to me about this. And again, I'm I'm listening to all this with one ear, kind of still thinking of your stories and thinking of what has been driving you to create the world that you've been creating across Massachusetts. So the first thing that comes to my mind is you've had, it seems like a lot of very abrupt ends of your career, of your different jobs with violent and irrational <laughs> endings. Am I crazy? Yeah. I mean, that's what it seems no, like. No, no, you're, no, you're, you're, that would be right on the nose, it seems. Yeah. I mean, and there's a part of me that goes chicken and egg or egg and chicken. I mean, it just the writing flow from that where like, because there has to be, I, I would imagine, I'm, I'm trying to project here a little bit, but I mean, I would imagine there's a degree of phobia or a degree of, let's just say concern at the minimum, the, of the irrationality, unpredictability, and horror of life. Yeah. Is that fair? It, it really is. Um, and it's in all aspects of it, you know? Um, because obviously with my, my work stuff, like you said, it's just, it's just crazy. Um, and then, you know, life in general. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when, when I found out about our son, I had my daughter who was pregnant at the time and our little boy, I was taking them for a ride out in the country near us because my daughter wasn't feeling well. And we just got her out of the house, like, you know. And so my wife was home alone, unfortunately, when the police came to inform us. But it, that's a shock. You know, the phone rings in the car, unknown number. My daughter answers it. And it's just like, it's the police. I'm like, And I talked to my boy the night before. I'm like, you know, did he come over to the house? Was he, was he angry? Did he do something, you know? And he had just not what I thought, and but just that, just to be driving and to get that information, it's just like, yeah. Um, and I, I think that's a really horrific thing about life in general, and that you learn is that you don't get to seal everything up with a nice little bow and say, "Great, all done." Everything's the way I want it. Grand. Now shit ends. Whether you want it to or not, death's not going to let you finish. But the other big takeaway that I'm uh, that uh, based off everything you'd related about that timeline was that you got in your master's in military yeah. history, but you got it while you were a trash man, right? Yeah, I got that and my bachelor's while I was a trash man. What did you think that was going to lead to? Was it, what was the goal? What was the end game of that? So I got my master's in 2008. And the end game was to become um, like an associate or adjunct professor. Okay. I wanted to teach history to college, college kids. Um, unfortunately, 2008, the market dropped out. Right. Right. And all of a sudden, schools weren't hiring 
people with masters as adjuncts because now they could get people with terminal degrees, their PhDs, as adjuncts. And I was like, I am not going for a PhD right now. So, got you. Got you. So I was an extremely educated trash man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's funny. We're we're doing. Um, this is not a plug in any way, shape, or form, but it's just such a coincidence. Uh, we're doing Dudley Moore and Peter Cook's sketch show. Good evening, right now at our parlor on Saturday nights, and one of the sketches um, that's so brilliant. They wrote it two different ways, and we decided to do both versions in the show just because it's funny, but it's a monologue um, where uh, Peter Cook originally uh, would go out there and talk about uh, being the most educated miner in his mine. And, and he's like, uh, it's like, I'm not saying that, that mine, he's like, I'm not saying that people that work in a mine are dumb, just the people that work in my mine are dumb. And, yes. and so he talk about that and about how he's trying to explain, explain Marcel Proust to people in the mine and all that. So that's like, what's going through my mind while you're saying that is I'm like, you're, you're that guy as, as the trash man, this overeducated writer. Did all this continually keep pushing you? I mean, I, I'm I'm wondering how much I can project onto this. Did all of it keep pushing you to write more that, hey, maybe the universe is trying to push you into saying, hey, all the rest of this shit, push it aside, do what you have to do, but focus more on the writing? I don't I don't think so, because okay. I was just I was just angry. You know, um, I was just an angry angry guy uh, there used to be a running joke at work which was uh, you know a happy nick is a happy department uh, yeah you were that guy i was i was i oh, could wow. sit there in the break room and i knew all the streets i knew all the routes everything it would be monday and monday was the day where they would send out the metal truck the truck that just collects washers dryers metal and I had a, a friend of mine named Corey. He was a he was a summer help kid. Really funny. And I would sit there and they'd be like, all right, Nick, you're gonna take one of the big trucks and go do yard waste. Yard waste is fucking terrible. I'm like, uh, you know, I, I think if you give that to me, I may have a hard time completing the run today. Well, are you going to make overtime? I said, I've never said I was going to make overtime. I said, I may have a hard time. I'm not feeling that great. I may have to take it a little slower than usual. If you're still taking the truck and like you're going with Scott, like, hmm, okay. So just make sure that I have a map, please. I don't know that area. It's like, you know that fucking area? Like, hmm, no. I'd probably do much better on the metal truck today with Corey. Like, no, you're not getting it. Like, okay, so just do me a favor, make sure you have a map. And I think that truck 85, I think I have to bring it down to the shop to get it checked out first before we go. God. Oh, yeah. Oh, and then, fuck. And, and, and then my foreman walk in, he, he would throw the metal book at me. He goes, yeah, Corey in 154, get the fuck out. You know? Jesus. Yeah. Would, and, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. I was just gonna, and there would be other days where I'd be like, I, I really don't want to do that. And they'd be like, yep, no choice. Like, okay. So I'd go out, I'd work for three hours, go, hey, I'm not feeling well. See you guys. Park the truck, go home. You know? I mean, I have to imagine some of that is 
square peg in a round hole, right? I mean, that's not. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, it's different if you're working in kind of something that lines up with your goals and aspirations a little more, right? Yeah. I mean, that's. I guess what I'm fascinated by is. Were you pulling every lever available to make it as a writer during that time and going, God, any day I could be out of here? Or were you resigned to just thinking, hey, this is it. This is going to be it. And we'll just see how much writing I can squeeze in in the, the meantime. Yeah, definitely the latter. Wow. Um, and, you know, again, my wife, you know, because there would be days, most days, we'd be like, this sucks. I hate it. It's miserable. And other days, I'd be like, ah, oh, it's the greatest job in the world, blah, blah, blah. You know? Um, and I didn't feel comfortable like when a position of authority would open up because I was in one sense, I was happy with the friends that I had and those friendships would end yeah. without yeah. a doubt. If I went up to be a foreman. Yep. Um, it, 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 yeah. Why, why weren't you taking your writing career more seriously? Why weren't you able, I mean, I know it's hard when you're shoehorning it around a full-time work schedule, but were there, were there, did you, were there just no other avenues where you're like, Hey, I'm, I'm tapped out. There's nothing else I can do. All I can do is all I can do. Or were there things that you could have done, but you were just like, I, I'm not in the headspace or for some reason you're not pursuing those. I think it was primarily a combination of I'm tired because you know, I was working as a trash man. I was working a part-time job at Barnes and Noble. Uh, and I was also going to school one or two yeah. nights a week. Yeah. And there's always the sense of self-doubt. You know, is this good enough? And that's, one of the biggest things that I talk to other writers and creative people about, like, listen, you just got to send it. Yeah. yeah. Because I did it for a long time. I'd send a piece, it would get rejected. I'd be like, all right, I'm going to mope about this for a couple of months. And now it's at the point where if I decide to send something out, if it comes back rejected, I'm like, that sucks. All right. Who's next on the list? Mm. You know? When did so, you first submit something? publication the first time i submitted on my own i was 19 wow. i had a couple rejected and then i i submitted a poem to you know again not for money just a publication that got accepted um so that was pretty interesting uh so Started pretty young. Was it consistent? Did you consistently submit throughout all these years, or were there peaks and valleys? Peaks and valleys. Yeah. Um, there might be a year or two where I didn't. I really started off in probably the early 2000s, and that was just with book reviews of military books. Uh, I would you know do that. And then I got published in, you know, the AK-47, right? Mm -hmm. There's a two-volume set called Russia at War, Encyclopedia of Russia at War. And there's an entry on Kalashnikov, 
And if you read that entry at the bottom, it tells you that I am the one who wrote that entry for the encyclopedia. So I did a lot of nonfiction writing. Got you. How did so that feel? What, How did that feel? The non getting response to nonfiction versus getting responses to the fiction. I liked it. I like it both ways. I like it when anything gets accepted. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Nope, I could see that. The um, let's jump to just where things now stand with Cross Massachusetts. Instagram has been a huge help to you, hasn't it? Oh yeah, yeah. I would imagine, and it's yeah. and you're writing for the for that medium almost now, right? Yes. Yeah. What's the plan with that? What's the plan with Cross Massachusetts? The plan is to finally get off my dead ass at some point and start really combining them into specific books. Like this whole month is just about 1931. So I may go back and start picking out all the stuff from the 30s and putting it into one mm. combined volume. Um, but I've got, I've got a lot of crap that I'm doing. Like I'm finishing up a graphic novel with another guy, um, working with Dead Reckoning, seeing what's going on with that. And I may put out to a poetry place, you know, some of the poems that I've done recently. So it, it really is just a matter of me going, okay, I've taken this much energy on cross. What am I doing? Am yeah. I getting the books ready? Am I doing an audio thing? So, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, um, I hope you do. I, I should say probably the most initially alluring part of your Instagram posts are those pictures. Where the yeah. fuck are you getting those pictures from? <laughs> I'm like, does this guy have like a family library of pictures that you're taking and like writing, making up backstories for? Where, where are these pictures coming from? All right. The Library of Congress. Really? Primarily, it is the Library of Congress. Um, if we want to break it down into percentages, I would say 90%, if not more, are just Library of Congress. The other five or ten percent are from another site that is all uh, what do you call it? Like public domain. Images. Thank you. Yeah. Yep. It's a Pickerel or something. P I C R. But okay. you gotta dig. Oh. You gotta dig. Yeah. I mean, how much time do you spend curating pictures? That is generally the longest amount of time. Yeah. Um, if I'm lucky, it's five or ten minutes. Sometimes I do like 45 minutes looking for one image. And I'll have a basic idea of the story. Like when I was finishing up last month, I sat there. I'm like, I'm like, okay. You know what? Duncan hasn't been to Miskatonic recently. What the fuck's going on with Miskatonic? Like, shit. My daughter just had our uh, our grandson Charles, and you know, so many things can go wrong with a pregnancy. Like, what if those assholes at Miskatonic 
have found a way to try to breed or attempting a way to breed Lovecraftian monsters. I'm like, all right, let's go. And so I'm like, what am I going to need first? Who am I going to need? He's got to have a reason to start looking into this. And that's where we come up with Genevieve. So I found a picture of an attractive young woman from the, you know, late 20s, early 30s, because I, I look for specific dates, too, so everything falls in line. Like, bang. Like, yeah, there she is. Well, what about her? What about her dad? How does Duncan know? And that's how it comes out. And like last night, so I was like, surgery. Yeah, I need a picture of a surgery. So I find it like, oh, I know what's going on in that fucking picture. And it just, bang, it drops. So that was one that literally you just based everything off the picture. Yeah, I have a general idea. That's like every one. I see the picture and the story comes out. The picture is your prompt. Yeah. Holy fuck. And so, how much editing do you do on each story? Is it a quick flash to bang? Is it like you churn it out that day and it's out there? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like I sit down, I find the picture, I crop it the way it needs to be. I open up the dock. I know roughly as I'm writing how much I need. I go through it. I'll do a quick character count. Um, usually when I'm around 400 words is right in the proper area. But if I'm really flying, you know, I'll hit like 450, 500 words, and then I've got to go in. I'm like, okay, I can tell this part of the story without this line. I can take this out. I can move this here. That's a good description, but it's not going to fit there, you know. So, but it's, I mean, maybe 45 minutes to an hour, everything's done and uploaded. Shit. So, <laughs> that's incredible. Um, what, how much is that going to change or adapt if you're now looking at putting it into book form? Where obviously the character count and all that, it's like, does that still make sense to write things that way? Or is it, are you basically going to look at it as like a first draft and now you have to go back in and insert, reinsert more stuff for different stories and, you know, recreate certain things? Well, I think that, like, if I do the 1930s combination, right, I can go through and as I read it, I'll be like, this needs a little more. Oh, I can do more here. And just, it'll flesh out as it goes. Um, and I also like to throw in the few that I have put into book form. I like to put in like a little note from Duncan at the beginning. Things like, you know, my friend Dave at the Historical Society, you know, wanted me to, you know, submit this one to him to store. Here's what you're going to find. You're not going to like it. Close the book now. You know, so. Yeah. It's fucking trippy, man. Um, listen, Nick, you've been, um, I mean, I, I've got questions. I could, we could keep doing this for hours, um, <laughs> but I, I won't hold you to that. I'll let you get on with your life. But uh, do tell everybody where they can be, where they should be following you, what they need to be keeping their eyes open for, just all your plugs links, Instagram, all that stuff. Instagram is honestly the biggest thing. Um, you just go onto Instagram, 
across Massachusetts. Uh, there is a link tree in my bio that should, if it works, offer up uh, access to Amazon and where you can find the book forms of stuff. Other than that, it's just uh, pick and choose. Okay. Yeah, but, yeah. but Instagram is definitely the, the best one-stop shop for everything that you're yeah. working on. Um, yeah. Dude, this was uh, – thanks for answering this, man. There was I had so much I was like, man, I got to ask him about this and that. And the, the, <laughs> the pictures was definitely one I was like, I got to find out where the hell he's getting these pictures from. I was yeah, like, that's not, awesome. that's not on Canva, man. I'm like looking there. I'm like, how is he getting this stuff? It's fucking brilliant, man. No, um, you go – Go on to loc.gov, go to the photographs, prints, and drawing drop down, and you type in anything. Type in like Cuba, the Acropolis, okay? And you will see all the bones that were just pulled out of graveyards and just stacked, like thousands Holy of them. Shit. Yeah. It's fucking great. That's a great tip. That's a yeah. great tip in general. Man, I, I do need to go there more <laughs> often. Um, dude, let's do this again. Let's talk Sounds again. Hot. and and definitely when uh when Dead Reckoning starts moving or any of your stuff is coming up, um come up on the net. Like let's let's push it. It's, Sounds uh, good. Thank you. I, I would I would love to talk more. Um yeah. let's talk down the road, brother. This was a blast. Uh, it was fun. Thank you so much. And uh get some pizza for that boy, you know, <laughs> before you brought him in front of the tribunal. That was Nicholas F. Stathew's profile in Havoc. Really enjoyed talking with him. I hope you guys got a lot out of that. I certainly did. Um, I know it's skewed very arts heavy, um, more than military heavy for obvious reasons. Um, but as I say, there's, um, you know, I've talked before about what I think makes veterans special. And I just want to reiterate that now. And I, because I think it's important. This is a good episode to remind at least myself of what I think makes a veteran unique. And it's not that a veteran is stronger or faster or better looking than anybody else. But I think what it is is the high volume of significant emotional events in a compressed period of time relatively early in life. And it sounds like um, that rings true for Nick as well. You know, he wasn't in for very long, and yet it was horrific and impactful. And it was early enough in his life, and he has literally spent the rest of his life unpacking it and and having the second and third order effects of that experience. So, um, yet another example, you don't have to have served for very long for the military to have made an indelible imprint on you. And for you then to overcome or leverage those experiences in a way that benefits or shines a light on your experiences in a way that benefits other people uh, for the rest of your life. Okay. So that was Nick's profile in Havoc. Uh, we started off this episode talking about Second Mission Foundation. I want to talk about this episode's other sponsor, my organization, Veterans Repertory Theater. Veterans Repertory Theater um, has been around only a little while because I've only been out of the military a little while. But it is a tax-exempt, nonprofit, 501c3 organization, which provides a platform for talented veterans to create compelling live theater and events in order to enhance, enliven, and invigorate American theater and the live performance arts. So 
we have an awful lot going on. It is the holiday, dare I say, giving season. So it is probably worth getting into what we have done. Uh, obviously, we would deeply appreciate any and all donations if you're so inclined. Um, you can find out everything you want to know about what we do and why we might be worthy of your support at vetrep.org, V-E-T-R-E-P.org, vetrep.org. Um, I will just kind of give a quick list of bullet points here of the things that we have done in our first full year of existence in 2022. We showcased over 75 veteran performing and visual artists from across the country. We did that through a number of different lines of effort. Our Savage Wonder Festival of Veterans in the Arts, our Savage Wonderground Immersive Art Event in Alexandria, Virginia, our Savage Wonder Podcast, our Write Loud shows on Instagram Live, and our daily literary blog. In addition to that, we awarded $25,000 in grants to veteran playwrights. We welcomed two playwrights into the Artists in Residence program at VetRep. We conducted workshops on two veteran plays, and we presented 30 performances at our parlor performance space in Cornwall, New York. We have 13 plays right now, all authored by veterans or media family members of veterans in various stages of development in New York City. Um, it has been just a rock and roll first year. We have just been sprinting out of the gate. I'm incredibly grateful to our team. Uh, we've got a big 2023 planned. Um, I can't promise different kinds of events, but I can promise more of what we just established this year. Um, we are very comfortable with these lines of effort, and I think um, there's a lot more that we want to do in this space. So we'll probably be workshopping at least seven of the 13 veteran author plays. We're going to have another $25,000 in grants to award out. We are going to feature series of 10-minute plays written by our veteran playwrights during our 2023 season at the parlor. And we're going to continue to have Savage Wonderground events all across the country. I don't know exactly where yet. Trust me, you will hear when we know, but we'll have a lot of stuff coming out. So again, for that and everything else you want to know about VetRep, please go to vetrep.org, vetrep.org, vetrep.org. Okay. I hope you guys had a great Thanksgiving. Uh, I don't have a whole lot else to plug here, so let me just thank our producer, Mike Neal. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. My thanks again to Nicholas F. Stathew. We'll see you next time for another Profile in Havoc.